Honest and raw conversations with people who have it all, or so it seems. Each week, we speak with people at the top of their professional game and invite them to drop the armour and share the struggles, trials, failures and shortcomings that have shaped their career, the parts you won't find on their LinkedIn page. This is We Need to Talk. And it's interesting because I think the more I've reflected upon it, the more uh, I've looked into it and the experience I have, the more I think it's men putting pressure on men. Hello and welcome to the We Need to Talk podcast. I'm Will Barton and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrice Donovan. And as always, P, we need to talk. What are we talking about this week, Will? This week we're talking about mental health and support systems. So it appears to be a bit of a running theme throughout this show, but I'm really excited about today's guest because we have an opportunity to take a deeper look at mental health through the lens of men. And I wanted to say up front that just because we're speaking about men and mental health today specifically, it isn't to suggest that we're minimizing or ignoring the mental health challenges that exist for women, trans, non-binary and other gender identifiers. But it has been a topic that's come up a bit in previous episodes, so we thought it warranted further discussion. I think to oversimplify it, Will, you could, we could kind of say that there's different groups and people and genders that are exposed to a whole heap of different situations, right? So men and women have different biochemical makeups. They have different societal expectations placed upon them. They have totally different experiences within the world. So the toolkit that we use kind of needs to be tailored to those needs, I would say. Um, I'd be really conscious to water down a topic as important as mental health in men to this broad, all-encompassing this works for everyone approach as we kind of unpack throughout the episode. Um, and we've identified quite a few times on this podcast already that there's something there. We can't always see it statistically. We can't always label it or categorize it, but we can feel it. We feel that there's something going on with men and mental health in a way that they're dealing with mental health in different ways. So I think you're right. It definitely warranted a wider discussion. Absolutely. And it's not just to say that mental health is the outcome of all of this. Um, and specifically what I mean by that is that the, the treatment of mental health issues, once they've already developed, it's as much about prevention and building up communities. And that's what we talk to uh, with Justin quite a bit. So support networks, um, they're important so that it doesn't get, or the, so that people don't get to this point of needing you know, crisis intervention or um or uh, support that is that extreme. So today, P, can you tell everyone a little bit about our guest? Yeah, of course. We are speaking with Justin Noble today. So Justin is a mentor and a coach for men helping them to get unstuck when life gets messy or just plain hard. After a long and successful career in partnerships and sales for major organizations like LinkedIn and Medallia, Justin did what so many of us dream to do. He switched gears. After dabbling in the occasional charity sabbatical throughout his corporate career, Justin unchained himself from his desk, evaluated how his work aligned with his personal values, stopped working for the man and started working for collectively the men. Oh, I like what you did there. <laughs> Stemming from deeply altruistic roots and experiences with his own challenges and burnout, Justin created a community and a safe space for men to develop their confidence, share their challenges, and connect in a place free from judgment or the outdated expectations that we burden men with on, at times. 
Today, he continues to build his grassroots community and tailoring his services as a mentor and a coach to overcome the overwhelm, build powerful support networks, and help men thrive. So we hope you enjoyed this episode of We Need to Talk. And as always, stay listening at the end where we'll wrap up the episode with a few facts and figures and give you our final take on the topic. Justin Noble, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Patrice. How's it going? Yeah, really good, really good. We're about to go uh, back into the office ourselves for this life after COVID, so looking forward to seeing what that has a bit of an impact on on how we live our lives as a society. Um, what about you? How have you been throughout this kind of lockdown uh, I've been very good. Well, started off not so great, I think, as with everybody, you know, struggling with kind of um, the monotony of being at home originally and trying to rebalance things, um, change of schedule, that kind of stuff. Um, but given the fact I, I had a, um, a big career change during it and now pursuing what I absolutely love, uh, I'm pretty kind of pumped and excited. And it's really quite a wonderful time at the moment. Absolutely. So on that, Justin, on that, what, what um, you, you describe yourself as a, a men's mentoring coach, what, what exactly does that entail? Yeah, so um, basically I work with men who have felt the weight of the world on their shoulders at times, I think we all have at, at some point, uh, and yep. have recognized that they've had difficulties and challenges and haven't really had the support for it. One of the biggest problems is I think that as men will um, – will resonate with us men is that we carry these problems and it's a bit of a sign of weakness sometimes or it feels like it is to actually reach out for help and do something about it um, and I noticed looking at the space that there was a lot of um, female coaches helping women which is fantastic but there's quite a gap in support for men um, and having been through a, um, a few experiences myself I, I felt that I wanted to help men who'd been in similar shoes really kind of um, understand what's causing their problems and work out a strategy or a path for actually solving them themselves with the, with the respect and dignity that they want. So um, that's essentially how I work with men. Okay. So what, what, what in, in terms of, a, I mean, what, what does that kind of look like? In a, a man in, you know, what, 30s, 40s, something like probably around my age, 35, um, they 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 come to you for for assistance for advice um is it like a coaching type relationship or yeah um, so it, it's absolutely um coaching or life coaching in the first instance um and i think the the main difference is that given some of the life experiences i've had uh, i have a um or i feel like i have a, a level of kind of understanding and empathy and the first thing is is really just giving men a space, a safe space to actually talk about problems they have. And one of the differences here between this and say, you know, talking to a friend is that quite often um, friends haven't been through the same experience. So they, they don't quite get it. They don't perhaps understand depression or anxiety. Um, they don't understand what that feels like. Uh, and also they'll come in with a bit of a bias. So they'll think they'll know how to fix things. And quite often people don't want solutions. They, they just want to be heard. And particularly the guys that I work with and certainly where I was, 
Um, it was a real feeling of, of loneliness, of not having anyone to talk to, not having anyone that really understands what the problem is. So first and foremost is actually giving them that space. Once they've had the opportunity to really declutter their minds and get everything off their chest, we can start working out what their biggest problems are and, and how to prioritize those, what's causing the biggest grief. I think one of the interesting things is that most people think they have an idea of what their, their challenges are, but quite often it's a bit more deep-rooted and there's some other stuff. And so we, we tend to kind of work through that. Um, and once we've got a, a sense of what that is, we start looking at what resources they have to actually be able to go and solve the problems themselves. Um, so that's kind of like the nature of coaching. Um, for me personally, I, I, I bring in um, where it's suitable, some of the experience that, that I have, and I, I use my lived experience as a bit of a basis as to how to help people do things like build resilience, reduce that negative self-talk, um, understand how to treat yourself better, um, all those kinds of things that build confidence and resilience that help people um, make clear decisions and actually work out the path to a life that they want. You mentioned, Justin, this whole idea of creating safe spaces, which I think is super important for not just men's mental health, but any kind of area of coaching and, and having a safe space for people to really unpack their issues. I wonder, though, um, is, is there kind of a common thread that you're finding with people in that there's something that's making spaces not safe to begin with? Yeah, well, I, I guess there's, a, you know, there's quite a, a stigma in, in the first place um, around men opening up and men sharing their problems. And it's interesting because I think the more I've reflected upon it, the more uh, I've looked into it and the experience I have, the more I think it's men putting pressure on men. Most, I think mm. if you think about it, most guys who have a partner, they typically rely on their partner extensively and it can put quite a burden on their relationship. And that's because they, they fear that, that um, perception of weakness if they open up to other people. Typically think either my problems aren't worth sharing with anyone else, why would anyone be interested? Or um, I can't possibly do that because it you know, impacts my masculinity or something like that. Um, and so that causes a bit of a problem in the first place. But um, what I have found is that in the forums that I have been a part of where um, men get together and, and do talk about these things, whether that be a general meetup or, you know, over a walk or, um, you know, a round of golf or whatever else. Um, not that I play golf, but I know people do do that. Um, it's, it, it, it is a really fantastic opportunity for men to connect and realize the, the value of sharing these things. And the other side of the coin as well is that, um, there's a validation there when you hear other people have the same problems as you. And indeed, when you provide your kind of advice and support or guidance um, to those people, it obviously makes you feel better as well. Mm. I hope that yeah, answers that's, your question. It, it certainly resonates with me um, and, and my own experience and my own journey. Um, that, that once you have that space, just, just being able to, to share that burden, you know, is like a problem shared is a problem halved and uh, that sort of thing but also the, the, the pressure on the partner. So for your, um, um, although our, our listeners will have heard the story, Justin, um, so in 2018, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety um, and, you know, sought treatment and all that. But it, it was really, on reflecting on it again, it, it was quite, I mean, it was almost, I won't say disappointing. Disappointing is not the right word, but it was it was scary how many people afterward came out of the woodwork and said, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that happened to me too. <laughs> And here I am going through this thinking that I'm the only person 
I mean, you know, logically that doesn't make sense, of course. But at the time, um, that I'm the only person um, that somehow I'm a failure because it's affected to me. You know, I've let it get to me. Mm. Um, so, so being able to create these safe spaces and and um, normalize it, as I suppose, and, and I, you know, to get to the question, I suppose that's a large part of what you do, not to diminish it, but is to begin to normalize these conversations. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, and I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry that you went through that experience yourself. Um, that said, you know, I've had a lot of experience with, with personally with depression throughout my life. Um, and it's only really over the last couple of years that I felt like I've really conquered it. Um, but it has been a part of my journey and no doubt it's been a part of yours as well. Um, and indeed, you know, I, I really kind of hold my, I take my hat off to guys like you who have been able to normalize it and really kind of get that word out there because, um, you know, from my own experience of being at that absolute low period where you have uh, very low self-esteem, you're comparing yourself to everyone else, you think that you're a failure, um, and it is a really, really uh, sometimes dark place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want anybody to go through that ever, you know, th- uh, th- sorry, I don't want anyone to ever go through that in their lives Um and that's obviously male or female. My my focus is men because you know obviously it's the the um, the experience I have of being a man uh, and realizing that there if there was support there when I'd had those difficult times then mm. things might have been different. Uh, I might have even changed career about five years ago. Um, and so that's kind of I suppose what what drives me. Mm. So I'm curious, Justin, if you can just unpack for us or help us to understand, particularly for those of the listeners that may not have worked with a life coach or a mentor specifically before, what exactly is a mentor in that? And and, and maybe if I, if I give the caveat of, you know, we have a lot of different options available to us from a mental health perspective to be able to speak to counsellors or psychologists or um, friends, co- uh, colleagues, even um, partners, where does the mentor kind of sit in in this group of support available? Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, I'm glad you asked that. Um, one of the reasons being is I've studied with the Australian Institute of Professional Coaches um, who are accredited by the International Coaching Federation and uh, they um, take quite a purist uh, look at coaching, which is basically saying that um, – you are there to help clients uncover the answers to the problems themselves. And that's through a series of asking different questions, helping them understand different avenues and really opening up their minds. And particularly um, if you are stuck in a bit of a, you know, a kind of a hole and on a bit of a problem, kind of looking at different parts, paths that you can take to actually solve your problem um, or indeed reframe your, your problem. Um, I think with the mentoring, it, it, for me, it takes it, a bit more or one step further. And I think, again, that kind of draws on my own personal experience of what I did to um, conquer the the reoccurring depression um, that I had throughout my life. And a, a lot of that is kind of looking at my life and understanding what the patterns are. And I think we often find that you, you do have patterns within your life and they're there for a reason. They have, well, they happen for a reason. They've been embedded. They might be down to um, certain things you experienced throughout your childhood or other life experiences. Uh, and once we have awareness of these things, then you can tackle them. 
Um, and that's, I suppose, a, a mix of you know leading people to understand what they need to do to, to um, look at themselves and then kind of coach them around how they problem solve and how they might change their behaviours or what they can do to actually help themselves and find the answers. Um, the other thing is that I think coaching has traditionally been very much in a one-to-one -one session type setting. And that's what we see with psychology and counsellors and whatever else. They can be very, very powerful at helping people uncover answers and, and actually make real progress and come out feeling very, very motivated and clear. The challenge then comes in life, basically. You might have an argument with your partner, you might have a problem at work, or the kids might be playing up or sick or whatever else, and it throws you off. Um, and all of that good work can potentially either be undone or kind of you know, set back quite, quite a few weeks. So um, uh, given the, the experience that I've had with both on and offline uh, communities and groups and, and support groups for men, uh, as well as um, uh, mixed groups as well. There's, I've seen the 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 real success that having a community promotes and creates for people, uh, and particularly men outside of that one-to-one -one coaching. So for me, as a part of my my kind of approach is not just the one-to-one -one coaching, but I'm actually building a community of like-minded men who are ready and willing to support each other who have been through those those same challenges. And I think that that just adds an enormous mm. um, support to people and help keep them on track. I mean, the, the I suppose the greatest example of that is um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, mm. isn't it? You know, in, in terms of that long-term um, mindset shift and, and behavior change, I can't think of any um, more successful group community um, to, 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 to have achieved that sort of thing. But I think you're absolutely spot on that it's that community and that, that safety net that creates that external resilience um, and, and, and people are no longer, um, you know, kind of spend 10 weeks or, or 10 sessions or whatever with a, with a psychologist and then left to fend for themselves um, they have that resource and that, that safety that they can fall upon. Absolutely. Um, so how have you gone about I think building... also knowing that, um, sorry, Will, I think also knowing just that depression historically stems from isolation, right, or a mm. lot of mental health challenges mm. stem from isolation. If you think about it, I, I mean, I don't know if you've, I'm sure everybody's had some experience with clinical um you know, clinical experiences, whether it's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a counsellor, or even a doctor to that degree, it, it's pretty isolating in all honesty. It's mm. a one-to-one. -one. You don't really, it's it's not anything that's community mm. uplifting of this mm. is how to deal with it ongoing and long-term. It, no... it can be tough too. Like, you know, it can be tough sessions and you walk out and you think, yeah, I, I can talk to my what partner about my this. Life? Well, <laughs> not quite that, but but you know, I can talk to my partner about this. But not having not been through the the been, been been through it, it's very difficult to articulate and to convey how tough it can be. Um, yeah. and it, it's it's somewhat necessary to unpack and to to you know pull the pieces of the jigsaw apart and then begin to put them back together. Um, mm. So again, I can only commend that idea of building a community around this. Um, I suppose, Justin, what I'd be interested to know is, is, is there something do you think that's absent in our lives that was there previously that's led to this this absence? Well, that doesn't really make sense, but <laughs> if you kind of understand what I mean, that, 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 you know, in times past there was a, whether it was it's been the impact of 
uh, commuting or online, social media. I'd, I'd be curious to get your view of the world in terms of has there been something that's dropped out of our lives that's given way to this vacuum or this void? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think the, the biggest challenge that we all face, and particularly men, is really a, a problem of loneliness um, and isolation. And I think that, well, certainly in my own experience, I'm pretty terrible at organising or have been in the past. I've got a lot better at it now. Um, but I, I, from a social perspective, was not great at staying in touch with people. Um, I wasn't great at organising things. Um, and I think women tend to be a, a lot better at that. They're a lot better at building support networks themselves um, they're much more open and they can share their, their, their problems, their emotions, you know, talk about their partners if there are issues there or talk about work and, and that kind of stuff. Men just go down the pub and, you know, talk about obviously, you know, sport or just have a pint or two. And that's, that's great, but it doesn't really resolve the underlying problems that we have. Um, and a lot of men that I've uh, been speaking to over the last couple of months have, have really talked about that feeling of being lonely. Um, I think, you know, one of the, there's obviously the kind of the, the natural tendency to move more towards, you know, um, metropolis, you know, city type settings that that's moving away from t traditional communities. Um, and I think also things like obviously just having kids and becoming a father, people become or men become very detached from what their social life was. Uh, and they, they f often there's a, a bit of a kind of a, a, a um, they forget that they need to really kind of take care of themselves and actually give themselves time for just hanging out with their mates or having a bit of time to themselves. Um, and I think that that, that kind of tends to um, fall by the wayside. And even in a relationship in that situation, you know, with, with, with kids, blokes can feel very, very lonely because they feel out of touch. Um, mm. And interestingly enough, I don't know if you've heard of uh, a lady called Esther Perel, who's a psychologist and done a few TED talks. Um, but she's she, my favorite. <laughs> I have such a good crush on that woman. Yeah, she's great. She's really good. Um, but she I talks about her podcast. Yes. She, she yeah. talks about how, um, more specifically, you'd kind of look at your partner to be your best friend, your lover, your confidant, uh, your kind of intellectual stimulation, you know, all of these different things. And, in the past, you know, before we were probably um, had structured societies like we do now, or you know, living in cities and whatnot, it would you'd rely upon your village for all of these different things uh, and support for your, you know, for bringing up your kids as well, um, and not not only forgetting the fact that your partner has the same expectations of you as well. So it's no wonder that things kind of go uh, amiss, and I think all of this does then feed into that, you know, that feeling of loneliness. Um, so I think that that is quite a big problem. One of the ones that I, you know, I'm looking to solve with the people that I work as, work with as well. So what 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 does your community look like at the moment? Uh, at the moment, I haven't actually launched it yet. So it will be I found I suppose grounded on a Facebook community so that we can actually connect offline. Um, there are you know there are heaps of communities out there online you know. They, were, they have been for a while, but particularly during COVID. Um, but I want to 
I suppose I want to have two things. One is to make sure that anyone who um, wants to join and has the same kind of mindset philosophy can do wherever they're located. But I do want to actually make it as physical as possible because, for example, I had a a, a young and new dads group uh, last week and there was a common theme that they they really enjoyed it and they really wanted to connect and actually do more things together because one of the things they said was that it's very different uh, in a group setting where you've got a mix of people who aren't parents actually kind of bring up um, mm-hmm. issues like how do you manage that uh, balance of your, you know, your kids going nuts and then having like deadlines and people at work shouting and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they want, you know, they wanted more of that kind of, kind of um, I suppose uh, environment. So, at the moment, it's it hasn't yet been launched, but this is the kind of thing that I will be doing in the near future. And is that um, that would look quite different as a result of sort of everything that we've just been through with the with resulting pandemics and everything like that. But I think that also probably brings up kind of another point about communities. And the way that we live our lives now, um, we do kind of flock to these massive city centres. And you know, how how do you how can you be part of a community when you spend one, two, three hours a day commuting away from your community? How do you kind of create those those safe spaces when you're physically or geographically not able to be in those spaces? So, is it that online is the better option, or is there a blend of both? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a, I suppose it's a, a slightly complex issue in the sense that obviously, first of all, you do feel more connected when you are face to face with people. There's, you know, there's no doubt about that. They say that 80% of communication is nonverbal. Uh, and, you know, if you think through a, a 2D screen, I'm not sure how much of that, that you get, but I'm convinced very little. Um, yep. So... <laughs> So there are, I mean, there are lots of groups out there. There are things like men's sheds. Um, I volunteer for a a not-for-profit called the Banksia Project, and they have what they call growth rooms, which are physical spaces for men to meet up once a month. So you get to know the other members, you build a bit of a bond, and you can share the the problems that you have and and talk about things in an unbiased and non-judgmental way. You know, no one's there to solve each other's problems. If advice is requested, then people can provide it. Um, but it's just a space for people to talk. But there's, you know, there's no reason why people can't start their own groups as well. Um, if they want something face to face and physical, and it's actually surprisingly, um, or it's, it's a really quite a nice surprise, uh, how many people are actually kind of willing to get involved. And it only really takes, you know, two or three people, if you think about it, to have a meaningful conversation and to be able mm. to share, share things and, 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 bounce ideas off of each other. Um, and then, of course, you've got you know, a number of online groups. There's a number of um, men's specific groups online uh, on, on Facebook. Um, they're pretty good, I think, particularly if people are feeling really uh, low, then there's there's literally thousands of guys in these groups who are ready and willing to, to provide their, um, uh, their, their kind of thoughts and support. I think the, the difference with that kind of online group and what I'm building, um, first of all, is that it's probably harder to uh, moderate those groups um, because there tend to be thousands of people in there and it's, you know, it's all kind of voluntary. Um, the groups, the group that I, or the community that I will be building will be a safe space for people to share things, but I'll be providing things like um, 
discussion groups, workshops, um, tips and tricks on how to uh, manage mental health and how to um, essentially build resilience and be kind to yourself and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and it will be um, quite a strong philosophy around the type of uh, mindset that you have. And I think, you know, for me, I'm, I'm working particularly with men in their 30s and 40s who traditionally would have perhaps been experiencing that midlife crisis that, you know, we used to talk about when, you know, your dad used to buy a flash new car or have an affair. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, that that's where I'm seeing a lot of the pain at the moment. And it's it's kind of slipping down to younger blokes in their, their 30s kind of wondering, you know, I've, I've done all this work. Um, I've built a bit of a, a, a career for myself, but I just am missing something. I feel like I'm, I've lost connection. Uh, I'm not going where I want to be. I just feel un, you know, unsatisfied. And those are things that can quite quickly lead into more severe mental health issues like mm. suicide, sorry, depression. And, and then, you know, obviously in worst cases, suicide. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We've certainly had a lot of conversations um, over the last couple of weeks about, you know, suicide being where a lot of the funding goes in Australia in terms of prevention of suicide. But, um, you know, in terms of bang for your buck and, and, and really dedicating a lot of the dollars in there, I think it's not necessarily getting to the root cause of it and there might be an earlier intervention that we can look at. So it definitely, um, I think, pays to invest in these earlier interventions and having these safe spaces as you describe them. One thing that dawns on me though, and I am acutely aware of the fact that I am a female, I am not a male, so I don't have the experience. I'm glad that's acutely aware for you, Patrice. I know, I know. I I don't want to come across saying the wrong thing and I don't want to... um, you know, in my ignorant mind, because I haven't experienced this firsthand, I don't want to say the wrong thing in any way. But my experience, or at least what I've seen of my experience of safe spaces for men, are men's sheds, or like, let's all get together and build a couple of things and and having that real like, oh, we're men, like we're really men, manly men, we're going to build a few things and hit a few hammers and it's very um, the traditional style of what a man should be. And I wonder if that's maybe um, a shift and a break away from that style of, I don't want to call it toxic masculinity because it's not that. And maybe that worked in the past, but um, breaking away from this, let's be manly men um, and hit a bunch of things with a hammer to no, let's actually have a safe space to have the conversation. I love that. It's really making me chuckle. Just hitting things that haven't been. Man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it's it's um, that's an interesting one actually because I think you're. I haven't actually been to a men's shed myself, um, and I I guess my um, you know perception of them is that they are for older guys. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but um, it certainly feels like it's it's quite often blokes who are retired um and might perhaps feel like a, a loss of purpose perhaps and i think we have to kind of bear in mind that you know the generations have, have changed in terms of their awareness of mental health and how they cope with things and you know it's almost like if we go back to world war ii it's almost like maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs in, in in action you know the the need for survival and shelter over our heads at first and then as the decades and generations have gone on, uh, kind of a, a more need, you know, more needs to fulfil that sense of purpose mm. and 
you know, self-actualization, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I think that you know that's that's great that they that those support mechanisms are there in the first place. But you're absolutely right. It's how do we kind of evolve that, that support? Um, and I think it's really if you look at people of you know generations who are twenties, thirties, forties, they're a bit more sophisticated about the way they think about mental health, um, and so therefore the the actual mechanism or the framework by which they they might kind of um you know connect and meet up will also be more sophisticated and certainly in the the, the growth rooms that i've seen uh sorry that i've been a part of um i, I suppose it's been quite interesting because the first one i belong to two um i'm a participant of one and i i actually run uh, a different one the first one was actually kind of largely um elder gentlemen in their late 50s and 60s and i could tell straight away that they just weren't used to talking about mental health issues and sharing the problems they had. Um, I think that, I suppose, being the, the A, a bit younger and also B, a bit of a motor mouth, uh, I was able to come in and um, share a few things which actually helped drive some really useful discussion. And I see there was some real genuine, uh, genuine connection, um, which I absolutely love. I, I really enjoy that group um, and, and attending that every month. Whereas the, the second group that I, I actually uh, run um, is probably a bit more younger focused. We've got a couple of guys there who are um, kind of late 50s, um, but you know a few who are in their 20s, a few are in their 30s. Uh, and it, it makes for a bit more of a, a kind of free-flowing conversation. And it's certainly not that kind of traditional, you know, I need to be hitting something or fixing something or whatever else it might be, you know, to kind of feel like a man uh, in order to have that conversation. And I, I really think that's great. And it's, it's actually encouraging because it mean, means that men are much more willing to um, delve a bit deeper and talk about these things without having to feel like that traditional kind of masculinity. Mm. Now, Justin, one of the things that we do like to do on this show is to is to begin to, um, and you know, speaking of connection, is to get to know the stories behind our guests. And um, I think it's fair to say that you weren't always in this space. I think uh, what 15, 20 years in sales. Um, what, More to fifteen. Fifteen. Okay. <laughs> Not um, quite that old. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? Talk, talk us through how you came to this place. How you came to this space and. And, 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 you know, perhaps, you know, to the extent that you're comfortable, share some of your story. Yeah, yeah, happy to. So uh, it's probably worth, uh, I suppose, sharing very, very briefly that, you know, I, when I went to university, I, in fact, I was actually going to study art or something more creative at university. And sadly, my, my dad passed away when I was uh, 17. So I'd had a, a bunch of plans and they kind of, um, they changed. I ended up taking a bit of a gap year. Um, and I think it's probably the same now, but you obviously try and get, you know, good grades to get into a university, but often it's a mad rush as soon as you get your grades to try and get to the university. And then there's a, a clearing process for getting into other universities. If you don't make your first one, mm -hmm. I was in that position where, because I had taken a year out, I already had my grades and they were, you know, they were actually quite, they were surprisingly quite good. Um, and it meant that I could, I could kind of be a bit more choosy about my university. And I think at the time it just seemed to make sense to do something sensible, like a business course, um, business uh, management, which I absolutely hated. It was so dull. Um, and not saying that's you know the case for everyone else. It's just my personal preference. And so I kind of, I, I, I did that for three years and then 
left university and then basically fell into a, a sales career because I didn't really know what else to do. I, I went to London and went to a recruitment company and they said, oh, yeah, you know, try these different roles. I remember on day one going into like a, a, a telesales environment and then uh, the manager said, right, gents, uh, get on the phones. And it was 60 calls a day, two hours on the phone. Um, so quite kind of, you know, bo boiler room type thing. But it was actually very fun. Um, and I, I, I did three years of that before kind of realizing that uh, it probably wasn't going to be my my calling. Um, but I continued doing it for, like you say, another 15 years or so. And during that time, I had plenty of highs. I really had some some great times, you know, both, I suppose, successfully in terms of the, um, the, the, the clients I worked with, the, 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 the deals that I brought in and, but also the, you know, the, the times I had with the people that, uh, that were around me. But as time kind of went on and particularly around the time I, uh, a couple of years ago when I, I went through a, a breakup, um, I was really starting to not enjoy what I was doing. Um, and there'd been a number of times, I think, as I mentioned, where I'd had quite severe um, depression. And this particular time, a couple of years ago, uh, I was at a, an all-time low where I was comparing myself to my manager and um, other salespeople and then everyone else around me. I was, I was never good enough at sales. I couldn't you know, talk people around enough. I didn't ask the right questions or um, I wasn't funny enough or whatever else. And there are a whole bunch of things. And I started looking outside my, my, my kind of circle. And I think combined with the, um, the breakup as well, there was just a lot of negative self-talk there. And when I look back on it, I can see that that's just a, a, a pattern that kept happening. And that's why I kept mm. sinking down into this well uh, of, of really quite severe depression. Um, and long story short, a couple of years ago, after um, a particularly big night of drinking, which is often what happens, you know, a lot of self-medication, I woke up um, feeling really, really low. And I remember that I'd been in a, a quite a bad state the night before, um, probably texting my ex-girlfriend and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and I realized that things needed to change, um, but I didn't know how to do it. Um, luckily enough, around that time, one of my uh, mates from from back home was getting married in Spain, so I had a, a kind of a bit of a, a, a break and really from the life where it was just you know it was it was just quite horrible. So I went to went to to Europe, went to Spain, and I was straight away thrown back into a group of people I hadn't seen for ages and just remembered what it was like being with people that really cared about me that I'd known for so long. Mm. And I suddenly remembered I was suddenly happy again, and I realised I hadn't been happy in in months, you know, I've been really, really, really depressed. Um, and so that was kind of a real uh, enlightening moment that it's actually possible to be happy. I can be happy. And then after that, I did a bit of traveling in this little town called Bilbao. Bilbao and um, I realized that there were a few things that I was actually good at, which was meeting new people, trying new things, doing lots of walking. I was doing like 20, 30 Ks a day, doing new stuff. And whilst it wasn't, uh, they weren't actually work traits, they were positive things that I saw in myself. And so after that trip, I ended up coming back to Australia with a, a bit of a different mindset on. Um, I remembered what it's like to be happy and I started seeing positive things in myself. Um, and so that really triggered the, the desire to actually find a life that makes me happy and not to squander the one that, that I, I have. 
Uh, and that's not to put pressure on people that, that, that do feel depressed because often that's part of the depression. Um, but um, I, I really actually wanted to, I wanted to be happy. I wanted to find that, you know, that, that thing that's going to make me happy or those things. And that's, you know, part of that's being what I, what I do for work. So f- fundamentally my, my sense of purpose um, during the next uh, year or two, um, there were a couple of friends who went through some very difficult periods and I realized that, um, I, I, well, I, I helped them out during those periods and I, I realized that I, I really enjoyed doing that. Um, and it's not that I enjoyed them being, you know, obviously in a bad place, but, uh, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the work. I really enjoyed the fact that I could actually help them. And, and a large, large part of that was because of that experience that I'd had myself. So it kind of kickstarted that, that desire to, to find a career, find something that gave me purpose. Um, and I think the, there's a wonderful book that you've probably heard of Simon Simic, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of find your why and, and that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm a really big believer in that now. And it's not that you necessarily need to change your job. It's, you know, what is it that actually drives you? Because once you have that, that beacon of light, it doesn't matter how you get there. It means it's always there. And it means that whether, regardless of whether you're in a, if you're in a happy place or if you've had difficulty like um you know perhaps someone dying or something that you don't have control over you've got something to hold on to you've got that purpose which kind of keeps you on track and that's something that fortunately i've i've been able to find over the last couple of years or so and culminating in the last you know six months of um really moving out of that that corporate world um in a a role or a, a, a career that i didn't enjoy i didn't feel match my my values or necessarily all my skills um and moving into this uh i suppose this this um career which i am really enjoying at the moment so uh, had you had you done you touched on values and um just then had you done any like was it just a gut feel or or had you actually kind of begun to articulate what you know these are my values and now i'm seeing that there is a dislocation that there's there's daylight yeah, absolutely and, and i mean i've worked with you know quite a few coaches i've been quite lucky um i've, I've got a a really great business coach myself and uh, a couple of other coaches that i've taken on and also some that i've i've i know through my um course with the aipc and Typically, one of the things that you do first of all in identifying that kind of why is really, you know, what are your values? Because most of us have a bit of a sense of what they are roughly. Mm. But if I were to ask you right now, Will, you know, what are your top five or ten oh, values? He has them prepared. <laughs> oh, he trust me. I've asked okay. him this question many times. He can rattle them off. Oh, don't Will is pressure. one of the few people that has a very, very good uh, value prop statement, don't you, Will? Yeah, I've forgotten it now, though. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> Yes. Well, that's, no, no. Well, that's it, great. It's great you've done the work. It, it, I, it on the other hand, do not, but I, I definitely, yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with that, right? Where they generally, I think Simon Sinek's version of it, version of it is that most people know how they do what they do, um, and they know what they do, but they don't necessarily know why yeah. they do it. Um, and I think that is something that is so challenging to get down to the root of it, right? Why do mm. I actually, and, and what makes me happy and what is the thing that makes me enjoy what I do? It's almost like that five whys question of, okay, I enjoy being empathetic and coaching people through this process, but why? What what really lights a fire within me to do that um, and really getting to the bottom of it? Mm. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's the 
the difference between you know floating through life and letting life take you basically um and it really being hit or miss as to whether you're you know you're living to your values and whether you're doing what you really want to do um versus actually you know actually deliberately doing things Mm. that really make you happy and again it doesn't mean that everyone has to change career or you know become a life coach or or or, you know go and help people um it could be the fact that you really value having a family and uh providing for them and the fact that you want to go traveling and you know those kinds of things it's really up to every individual um but if you're not really if you don't really have that clear in front of center it makes it harder to actually achieve that because you also don't have that feedback mechanism saying, well, I've done this, that actually, you know, aligns to this goal or, you know, whatever it is. Mm. One of the, mm. one of the things that really helped me to, um, to, to get that, that values, uh, what did you call it, Patrice? Values statement. Values, value, proposition, value, value proposition, statements. I have them written down somewhere. I'll pull it out for the fact check. They're wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of them is accountability to the people. And I just love it. Well, it will always stick with that, me. That's actually one of my principles. And, and, um, it, it was listening oh. to it, it was listening to a, um, a, a a webinar by a bloke a bloke a, a professor. John Martini? No, no, no. He he works with the um, I think it's the Ethics Centre, Dr. Simon Longstaff. And for a long time, I'd been I'd been struggling with one of my one of my values, which is ambition. And um, in in some circles ambition is quite toxic you know it's perceived as you will throw your grandmother under the bus if it means that you're going to get ahead and that's just not me like patrice will vouch for this anyone who knows me will vouch for this i was struggling with with you know wow. how do <laughs> <laughs> um, but i was i was struggling with how do i articulate that value or how is that one of my core values but it it by the same token, it doesn't really ring true. And it was listening to this talk by um, by Simon, Doctor Doctor Simon Longstaff, and he introduced this concept of principles as almost like guardrails, and and it is your your principles which guide how you apply your values, and that's where Patrice the accountability to the people, um, public good and transparency. So they're my three guiding kind of principles. Um, and for me, it was like, you know, lightning bolts went off when I heard this and I thought, oh, that is it. Um, um, I'm not so sure where I was going with that in terms of a question, but I, I suppose to, 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 to put it to you, have you ever gone to that, that place of thinking about how your values are guided, um, you know, to put you on the spot, Justin, any idea what your principles might be? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, I mean, it's certainly um, been born out of my experience in sales and the corporate world. And I think that, you know, fundamentally as a salesperson, your, 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 you know, your role is making more money for a company or for other people. And I mean, you know, to a less greater or lesser extent, that's other roles, but you are literally designed or you are there to, to make money for a, a company. And that's basically it's enti- pretty much entirely what you're, you're measured on as well. And it made me realize that my one of my strongest values is um, or anti values is is not money. You know, I um, it's I, don't get me wrong. You know, I want to be comfortable. I want to uh, you know provide for partner and family when I I have it, and to do the things that I want to do, like traveling when the the apocalypse ends. 
But um, uh, but it, it's it's really not a driving factor for me. And I really I just realized over the years that that's one of the reasons why I really struggled with what I do. And I think a part of that as well was, you know, I mean, sales isn't all bad by any means at all. And there's, you know, many, many, all the salespeople that I know are very, very good. But there is an element of pressure that comes in, you know, driving a deal forward, making a customer, you know, do that next step to get them closer to actually buying something, um, getting them to buy something before deadline so that we hit, you know, hit your targets. And I just, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. Um, And it's absolutely Mm -hmm. not the way that I want to work. You know, in my as a you know a small a small business owner myself you know there's an element of sales that be involved with it but it's much more relationship based and um and that's absolutely the way that i enjoy working so mm. kind of in a you know a long way of answering your question that's how i really started to realize that what my values were and the fact that i was doing something that just just didn't kind of resonate with them and the other side of it as well is that i've got a fairly short attention span um I struggle with <laughs> looking at software demos and stuff like that. And I've actually been bored throughout my own software demos. <laughs> so I realized I was much more, you know, much more enjoyed working with people directly. So, and again, this is no disrespect to any of my, you know, mm. former companies or, or colleagues. It's just purely my, my own experience and my values. Well, I suppose it, it probably all comes down to alignment, right? That, um, to your point, Justin, that didn't that sales way of life didn't align with your values and your way of of thinking. But for some people, I know some people that sales is you know the most exhilarating thing in the world for them, and that definitely aligns to their values. I think it goes the same for everyone that we have this kind of uh, accountability to ourselves almost that we really need to find and understand what our values are so that we can live in alignment with them. And as we do, things just kind of start to fall into place and work doesn't feel like work. And there's, um, what were we talking about the other day? Well, work-life harmony instead of work-life balance, where it's not stressful. You're just, you're just exhilarated and excited about the work that you're doing. So it doesn't feel like work anymore. That's a really, that's a beautiful term actually. I really like that. And, and and to that point, you know, I'd say that most most of the people I worked with, particularly in my my last role, were really dedicated to what they did. They were really great, and there were so many other things outside of. It's not necessarily you know the products you worked with, but you know the people that you work with and how you serve them and uh, the, the support you provide them. And I suppose you know actually kind of the things I did enjoy about my role, particularly over the last couple of years, is the opportunities I've had to maybe do a bit of coaching with with people internally um, and work with people unfortunately it wasn't a big enough thing for me mm. to continue i want to kind of pour all my energy and effort into that um but you know people have different mixes of, of, of values and things that they enjoy doing mm. but that, i mean that goes mm. to your point though that you know it doesn't necessarily have to be a career change if you mm. understand your values and and what what drives you and what aligns with them you can begin to identify these opportunities in everyday life um, absolutely yeah and and i think that's why there's also we're, like we're in 2021 everything is transferable these days yeah. mm. like everybody has completely transferable skills in what we do in today's day and age yeah yep. that's very so true it's not as cut and dry as just a as a career change yeah and, and that's actually i suppose a wonderful reminder for people who are struggling thinking you know feeling unfulfilled is that actually there are a lot of transferable skills so 
I mean, sometimes they might want to make a career change and it's worth thinking rather than thinking, what else can I do? It kind of opens the doors to thinking, actually, there's probably quite a few things you can do. It's just thinking a bit more Mm. laterally around it. And then it's like, you know, well, how do I, if it's not a full on career change, it's what could I do within my current company that might um, tick more of my boxes? And if I do more of that, can I perhaps make more of a role out of it or, you know, whatever else? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's an industry change or sometimes it's, mm. it's not always as big as I was a school teacher and now I'm going back to university to become a psychologist. Um, sometimes it's, you know, I'm a school teacher, I want to be more empathetic, so I'm going to, you know, seek to be focusing more on working with kids through pastoral care or mm. whatever that may look like. There's lots of opportunities um, for people to take those transferable skills and find something that aligns much more to their values. Um, Justin, I'm, I'm curious because it's something that we've kind of spoken a lot about on this podcast so far, but, you know, we talk a lot about the facts and the stats behind mental health and men's mental health as well. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious to understand and unpack with you because this is, this is kind of this back and forth grapple that Will and I have had, right? Where we go, the stats tell us one thing, but we just know that it is so hard to measure and have any level of faith or trust in statistics around mental health, men's mental health, when we know that just there's so many people that we know personally or gut feel even that it's just not being reported. Mm. Um, I just wondered if the stats that are out there um, and I, like anything that's coming to mind, I know there was one that I was looking at today that was saying um, men deal with threefold more, so they're they're three times more likely to be at risk of suicide. Uh, mm. But um, on average, and when we're talking about reportability of mental health, women far outweigh the. Um, you know, male to female ratio of people that are reporting mental health mm. and seeking help for it. Do those kind of, the, the stats that are out there, are they matching up with your experience on the ground when you're having conversations with men and mental health and, and mentoring them through this process? Is it is there like a deep misalignment with what's being reported versus what the experience is? Um, I, I think... Sadly, the the kind of more prominent facts, like for example, seven there are there are nine suicides a day in Australia, which is pretty tragic as it is, and seven of those are male, so it leaves only two wow. that two that are female. Um, and I think that from what I've actually, if you kind of dig beneath the surface, there are actually quite a similar number of women who do feel suicidal it's just they don't necessarily go ahead with it men have that you know that kind of adrenaline and impulsivity which means that they might just go ahead and do something you know pretty pretty um pretty severe um and i think the the stats are i think one one of the other stats is that one in four uh, Aussies suffers from depression throughout their lives. I think that stat is probably underrated. Um, I, I imagine mm. there's a lot more people that really suffer and don't 
you know, don't talk about it. I mean, I think mm. I'm someone who is quite open and do talk about these things, but I never really shared the depths of depression that I, I, I kind of experienced uh, when I was going through them. Um, and it really, mm. really makes me feel sad for how many people out there. I've got a few friends myself, one, one in particular who I worry about quite a bit because um, I know that he suffers quite a bit and he's having quite a tough time himself um, at the moment. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think there, there is a real problem there um, because there's, there isn't, there just isn't enough support there. And, and men typically do leave it until they get right to that bottom bit before yeah. actually kind of looking at ways to prevent it or, you know, reach out and build um, like a platform that might, uh, that might help them in, in difficult times. So in some, you know, in answer to your question, yes and no, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah the, the, the worst stats I think are, are quite accurate. Yeah. I mean, it's something that we have had a couple of conversations now about, I think um, our last episode with Miles where we wrapped up the episode and we kind of said, it's, it's just a gut feel that we have that people are, people are talking about it much more after they've been through it retrospectively mm-hmm. where um, you hear a lot of people say, you know, I've been through depression or I've had a depressive episode or I've had mental health challenges in the past. But um, you you probably reflect back on the conversations that you've had with people and not as many people really say to you, I'm currently depressed or mm-hmm. I'm currently going through something really challenging. But try and find you know, empirical data on that. And it's just really impossible. There's so much of, uh, mental health and, and just our mindsets in general that just isn't reportable, Mm. um, in a, in a data society, in a data driven society. So, um, it's always interesting to kind of figure out what are those things that we, we just don't even collect data on at the moment, truthfully, Mm. that are really, really challenging the landscape. Yeah. And just kind of, I suppose, tied in with that, it's, um, I suppose it's, it's then that, how do you know if people are in a a bad state or, or, you know, not feeling very good and how then if you do kind of understand, how do you open up those, uh, how do you open up that dialogue in a way that's not intrusive and is supportive? Mm. Um, and there's a real, I think there's a real gap in general, you know, public knowledge around how to do that. There's a number of things like Mental Health First Aid Australia and courses like that that help people understand how to dig out those conversations. But I, I must admit, you know, I, I did it only a couple of weeks ago and I'd, um, you know, I'd, I'd have to practice it a bit in order to become competent at it. Um, I don't know if you've done a, you know, a regular first aid course, but I remember doing that a few years ago and I, I can't remember any of it. Mm. Um, so it's, again, one of those things that needs to be just brought into awareness in the public domain um, and a bit mm. of education around there. And some of the, interestingly enough, have been kind of thinking about how there are certain people in society that are very well positioned to do this, people who have close contacts um, with people, like, for example, hairdressers or, um, you know, even kind of people behind the bar. Um, uh, you know, there, there's a there's a there's a kind of a number of professions that actually kind of lend themselves to that. And there's actually a hairdresser that I went to the other day and he said, you know, I, I told him a bit about what I do. And he said, well, if I, I sometimes get people in here and there's been one or two where I've asked them if they're you know, feeling okay. And they've told me something. And then they've come back to me weeks later saying it, they were you know very close to 
perhaps doing something quite bad and it actually really turned them around. And that's the only point of contact where they had someone that was actually open to listening mm. to them and, and, you know, ask that question. So there's, you know, there's, I think there's quite a bit of work to be done, but there's a, a big opportunity there to create that awareness and empower people to be able to have those conversations with confidence. Um, and, and it might be the difference between saving someone's life and not. Mm. Mm. And I suppose the really big part of that is also um, creating a creating a mindset of how to be an ally in mm. that situation. There's something about opening up to a hairdresser or a barber or a barman about um, your issues versus, you know, the challenge or the stigma surrounding if I open up to someone that's a colleague in my workplace about this, am I going to be unfairly judged or penalised? Yeah. Um, so I guess more than anything, it's it's really good to understand how can we be, and, and from a female perspective as well, for me learning how can I be a better ally to men going through this? Um, and like you say, men and women sometimes need different tools to deal with mental challenges. Um how can women be better allies to men suffering through mental mental episodes or mental health struggles? Patrice, I'd actually be interested to hear your views on um, how women perceive men, given you know the, I suppose the the general, I say societal view, but I think it is more men putting pressure on men, mm. feeling they have to be macho or they have to be masculine, they can't open up, they can't show signs of weakness. I'd love to yeah. hear what the, the, the um, female, the other side of the coin is. <laughs> it's interesting because I, I feel like I might get myself in a little bit of trouble here. Um, it's, you know, okay, so growing up as a female, I will say this, and I'm, I'm a bit out of practice now. I haven't dated anyone in, in well over um, <laughs> 15 years now. My husband and I have been together for a long, long time. But um, I know that supporting a lot of women through heartache or breakups or dating life or anything like that. The number one thing that usually comes back is women just kind of going, I don't understand what this guy wants from me. Like, I don't understand what he's feeling. I don't understand what he's saying when he means X. I know that he means something, but I don't know what it is. And it's definitely not what he's saying. And I think, um, it's that overwhelming feeling of, sometimes we just don't know what men are thinking. And I think definitely I see that particularly in the workplace where my interactions with women are that they are far more. Um, and again, this is my experience. So I can only speak to my experience, but women are seemingly a little bit more willing to open up and be a little bit more honest about their feelings. Whereas sometimes with men, I feel like I'm taking one step forward, one step backwards. Um, where, you know, you might break ground with them one day and then um, sometimes they'll pull that armour back and sort of and put on the macho facade and walk away only to come back and seek you out like a week later and say, hey, I really needed that conversation two weeks ago. You don't have any idea how much that helped me. And as a female, I'm standing there going, that was one of the worst conversations I've ever had in my life. Like you bit my head off and walked away. What's happening? I don't understand. So definitely I think there's that whiplash of um, just men and women think a little bit differently. I think in my experience, men have been definitely, um, you know, eager to put up the armour a little bit more than than women have. Mm, yeah, I, mm. yeah, completely agree. It sounds like a, a tricky situation for you as well, particularly if the if it's been a bit hostile. 
I don't think hostile would be how I would explain it. I think it's just um, genuinely I think, and you can almost see the cogs turning, or at least in my experience I've been able to see the cogs turning where you go, oh, I'm getting somewhere, we're really unpacking something here, you just got really honest with me, and then all of a sudden it's like a a switch flips in in someone's mind and they go, oh, I was just too vulnerable, Mm. I was just too Mm. honest, and I need to pull it back and prove that I'm a man. Mm. <laughs> How do I do that? By making an inappropriate comment or by saying something really macho yeah, or by going, I'm going to go and pick exactly, up a hammer now and, and start banging something. on this table <laughs> just to nobody's actually ever done that. Um, but certainly I've had people pick up really heavy boxes and walk away. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it's the, uh, I think it's the armor thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is truly just a perception. And I like, that's where I kind of look at it from the perspective of, um, what is the true cost of this toxic masculinity Mm. thing that we call? I mean, that within that we can unpack that so much deeper, but I, I couldn't care less if a man unpacks their feelings to me or not. I'd, I want to support them through that. But where I think it gets quite damaging is where the armor comes up and they go, no, I have to be this version of mm. what my dad said was a man yep. or what my grandfather, my father never, I never saw my father cry. Do you know how many men I've heard them say <laughs> that, that particular sentence, mm. I never saw my dad cry. And we hold that up as some kind of trophy that's fantastic. I'm really sorry, guys, but mm. if that's the role model that you're looking towards, I'm really deeply sorry mm. that you didn't get to see your dad cry. Mm. Like it should be okay for men to cry. Yeah. I wonder actually how much that will change again with the generations, you know. I feel like um I feel like kind of current generation of say younger fathers will probably be a bit more a bit more open to that. But there's still going to be there's still that stigma there. Um when you talk about cost to you know, cost of that toxic masculinity, there's actually um there's a a study by um Promundo and Axe who are a kind of uh, uh, a Unilever brand. They're like a male grooming brand. And they did a study into uh, young men's attitudes and behaviors and understandings of manhood. Um, and it found out that most feel like they're pushed to live in what they call a, a man box, which is a, a rigid construct of kind of cultural ideas of what, what it is to be a man. Um, and the, they actually calculated a, a cost of $15.7 billion. And this was um, a study they did across... Uh, um, Americans, Mexicans, and and Brits, um, and that that cost is associated with you know um, the uh, uh, helping survivors after say they've been attacked, um, things like road rage and traffic incidents, um, mm. delinquency amongst staff, you know, due to like drug use or depression or things like that. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, it sounds like a, a big number, but you know, it's there's a there's a, a strong chance that it, it, it could be true. Um, cause mm. I think that it still, it still has a massive impact. Sorry. The way men are led to believe that they should think and feel, um, is still has a very negative impact on society in general. Um, and it's one that, you know, I, I hope that we can change over time because mm. at the end of the day, you know, men are um, physically stronger than women. So that's why, you know, we have, domestic violence and, and things like that in, in families that are in lower socioeconomic groups with less education and less support and that kind of stuff. But if you can support a man and help him 
unpack his emotions and deal with the problems and emotions that he experiences, then it doesn't really matter where you are in, in society. It can only benefit and help mm. everyone around him. Mm. Mm. Very wise indeed. Maybe my question to, to wrap this all up is uh, a question to both of you as, as people that identify as males. Um, the, the person that identifies as a female is going to ask you, what can women do to be better allies and more supportive? Who wants to start? <laughs> Will? Um, I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure what, what women can do. I, I think... Well, maybe have you had an experience where you've walked away going, yep, that was everything I needed out of that experience or conversely, the opposite, that was terrible. Look, anything that that I suppose continues to play scaffold around that that idea of toxic masculinity um, is is going to be damaging. So in terms of what not to do, you know, um, it's that continuation of, you know, just just push through, you'll be right, suck it up, that kind of thing. Um I think, though, probably the, the the biggest impact might be through, uh, and to allude to the point that you made, Justin, in terms of gener- future generations, it's it's almost um, that, and whether it's a, a, a role as a mother or a grandmother or a, an aunt, is to foster that that part of humanity that is, um, you know, kind of the antithesis to toxic masculinity. It's about encouraging. Um, you know the creativity, encouraging the the feeling of feelings, um, the expression of emotions, um, and and then you know giving your uh, your male partner a bit of a slap up the ear if he tries to get his son or his nephew or his grandson to suppress them and to push them down. Um, it's not a very good answer. I'm, I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a good answer. I think I think you're absolutely right. It's in the you know, leading by example, being a role model for your, your children. That's, you know, that's the, I suppose, the, the longer-term play in, in helping the next generations be better than generations before them. <clears throat> I think more in the, the, you know, if you're talking kind of more immediate terms, if, say, for example, you're a partner of a, a, um, a bloke who is struggling, who is suffering and might keep, you know, it might, might kind of keep coming to you and confiding in you, it might be on a, you know, a weekly basis or a monthly basis or whatever that kind of cycle is. Um, you know, men in particular don't want to be told what to do, but there's going to be a point where they're vulnerable and they are, you know, they, they will, they may well cry in front of their partner. They may well, you know, they'll, they'll be vulnerable with their partner. And that's an opportune time to really connect with someone and to build a, a strong bond. And it's an opportunity to suggest to them that um, there are other people that are struggling that are in the same position as them. And it's okay to reach out for help. And it's okay to, you know, maybe whether it be a mate, you know, go and talk to them and have that kind of male ear to share. Um, and also to have, you know, those honest conversations, because I feel like you know, the, those partners of men, again, sorry, it might just might not be women, could be, you know, guys as well, obviously. Um, it's a burden it puts on them and it puts on the relationship. And if they don't kind of deal with it as a team and together uh, and be honest with each other of the impacts that it's having uh, and then actually look at how they can go and solve those problems together, then it could drive them apart. It could be damaging. And then it could lead to a whole bunch of other things like, mm you know, people kind of losing their jobs or whatever else. So it really starts with that 
having a, a really open and authentic conversation. Yep, that's certainly my experience in the past was was that kind of almost as you described, Justin. So probably should have led with that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Justin, it's been it's been fantastic to have you on. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation and and um, and really inspired by what you're doing. Um, not just not just for the 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 altruistic uh, outcomes, but having the courage to actually sit down and think. You know what? I, I need to change something, and um, I've I've found what makes me tick, and I'm going to dive into that headlong. Um, and the fact that you know you're out there um, helping others to to better their lives is, is just you know that much better as well. So, thank you so much for sharing your story and for for joining us today. Well, mate, thanks thanks very much. Really appreciate that. Um, you know, it's it's something I've kind of got into the habit of just doing now. So it's quite nice to have that external validation. I've you know I've re it's. I think one of the things that I'm trying to do is just have as many conversations with people who have a similar mindset because you always get something out of it. Um, most of them don't tend to be podcasts, I won't lie. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to sit down and have this conversation with you guys. And I've certainly learned things tonight as well. Justin, for any of our um, male listeners that might be thinking that they want to have a conversation with you or they want to be part of the communities that you're building, where would we direct them to? How do people get involved um, so, so that, you know, they have more options than just banging hammers against <laughs> against the wall or <laughs> um, actually having a discussion? Yeah, uh, that's a uh, yeah, good question. Um, so uh, I... I suppose one of the easiest ways to, if, if people wanted to learn a bit more about me or um, even have a conversation, then um, the first part of call is probably my website, which is jpnoblecoaching.com.au. Um, but I'm also on LinkedIn, um, Facebook and Instagram. Um, I can provide you with the, the handles for those, but uh, it's uh, Justin Noble. Um, it should be hopefully fairly easy to find. I don't think there's too many of them around. Um, but, uh, yeah, if, we'll if pop a link to those in the show notes. yeah, if people want to, you know, shoot me a message, then they're more than welcome to. Amazing. Well, I think, um, it's definitely good to have people like yourself out there, Justin, kind of not only, um, creating that safe space for people, but also taking time like this tonight to be able to educate people on, on how to be better allies and how to support people through that. Um, blowing the lid off, shall we say, some of the stigmas that we have around mental health and and men as well. So I think that's um that's been really really enlightening for me personally. Thank you. No worries. Well, yeah, thanks again, guys. It's been really wonderful talking to you. You know, Pete, when we first talked over the idea of a podcast, it was with conversations like the one we just had in mind. I really hope our listeners got something out of that discussion with Justin. I know I certainly did if only for the chance to openly discuss some of the underlying drivers that result in men finding themselves in these places and circumstances. So let's mm. kick it off. A solid theme that came through for me was isolation and loneliness. Yes. And it's one of those things that we, um, we hear so frequently uh, when it comes to mental health that isolation or I think it's depression specifically is caused by isolation or it's worsened for sure by isolation. Yeah, I think um, worsened. The, 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's always interesting, isn't it? Cause my experience with people that I've spoken to that are in that depressive state, all you want to do from what they've told me is just isolate and not see anyone. So it's almost as if, you know, your mind is working against you. Um, you know, sometimes the brain can be cycle. really, really smart and say fight or flight mechanisms are going to kick in and we're going to have all of these like chemical responses in our brain. But it's almost as if it's really cruel in these depressive states where your brain quite literally seems to trick you into doing the thing that's bad for you, or at least that's what the statistics are showing us. We should talk to somebody about that. Yes, we should put it on the list. So one in three Australians reported an episode of loneliness between 2001 and 2009, with 40% of these people experiencing more than one episode, according to a study on loneliness using data from the HILDA survey, that old trusty chestnut, the household income and labour dynamics in Australia survey. Um, This one actually reminded me a lot of... uh, a campaign that was actually run in the UK. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It was back in 2017. Um, it was so sweet. I loved it. It was just the most beautiful and heartwarming thing. It was the campaign to end loneliness. It got a lot of attention because they were talking about loneliness in old people specifically. Like when you Mm -hmm. get to a certain age, you become super lonely with the number of over fifties experiencing loneliness, setting to reach 2 million by 2025, 2026, which is like just makes you just so sad, right? Mm. And that's not considering Um, the impacts of COVID, which of course would have accelerated that big time. No, no. I mean, this was going back to 2017, which none of us could have predicted, even though, you know, there was lots of predictions about COVID, but we'll save that for another day. Um, so that those numbers are uh, compared to the 1.4 million in 2016 2017, which would be a 49% increase over 10 years. Um, they say half a million people go at least, and this is so heartbreaking, half a million mm-hmm. people go at least five or six days a week without seeing or speaking to anyone at all which, you know, when we're talking about isolation and the effects of isolation and loneliness on people, you've got to really wonder how Mm. their mental health is in those circumstances. Um, Well over half of those aged between 85 and over 38% of those um, aged between 75 to 84 live alone. So naturally they would have less opportunities to see people and, and, you know, be in social settings. Um, Two, oh, this one's heartbreaking. Two fifths of all older people, and again, remembering that this is UK based data, so that's about 3.9 million people said that the television was their main company. Oh, that is so heartbreaking. That's like just sad. But also, like, I don't know if you've really watched much TV lately. I'm not talking about Netflix and, you know, good quality TV that's coming out these days. I'm talking about like when I picture oldies watching TV, like really there's not much on TV for them. It's like Mm. the bold and the beautiful. Not great company to keep. Writers and producers aren't really creating content aimed at that age bracket, are they? No, 100% not. And it's, it's, I would imagine as well, like a lot of, there's kind of this fascination with youth. So when we talk about um, loneliness in older people, there's this, I guess, 
element of like your mortality that comes into it. So you, I could only imagine that you must feel, um, isolated in the sense that like so many of the, so many of these people, their only interaction is with a television set, let's say, but then the content isn't really, um, demonstrative of their experiences. And it's, it's not really as relatable as Mm. say their current experience. So I would imagine that is even further isolating. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's I don't this, want to get old now. There's this mismatch between what they're experiencing and what's being portrayed in what they're watching. Yeah, but it goes. Yeah, hundred percent. So one of the things, one of the other things that we spoke about with Justin was this idea of um, community, and that came out really strongly. <clears throat> mm. And and you know, this is just as I see it, another example of where the ba- the breakdown of traditional communities and larger communities built around family units is just, you know, causing Mm. a a whole lot of issues. Yeah. And also family moving further away, I think is becoming more common as well now. Um, It's interesting, this, this particular research that came out of the UK in 2017, it also went on to list like the health impacts of loneliness and really comparative figures as well. Um, I just pulled two. There was there was so many, but I just pulled two for you. So they say loneliness, living alone, and poor social connections, and I suppose this is really at any age group or any kind of demographic, um, are as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, huh? Um, and then they say also loneliness is worse for you than obesity. There was also a whole range of stats on, you know, like life expectancy decreasing mm. and um, heart health, all of that kind of stuff. But I think it's just so interesting that there are really, um, you know, there's a lot of research coming out around just how bad this can be for you and isolation mm. can be for people. Now, one of the things, and I think Australia has done this particularly well, to combat that in, in men, it has to be said, uh, is the men's shed, which gets a, an honourable mention in our conversation with Justin. Oh, I have to say, though, I feel like I gave it a little bit of crap throughout the episode. <laughs> I'm not – I, <laughs> I don't want to say that men's sheds are bad. I don't want to say that they're bad at all. I guess the point that I was trying to articulate, perhaps not very well throughout this episode, mind you, was that um, – I feel, and I have no, I have no facts to back it up. So, will hopefully you're going to fact check me in a second. But I feel as though my experience with men's sheds or people that have been involved in men's shed, it's very old generation, um, and it's kind of a space for older men to engage. Um, but also. I still do struggle with it a little bit because my experiences as well have been that it is very much like building, um, and. I just wonder if that portrays this image of what a man should be, which is exacerbating the problem. I still have probably not articulated that well and I'm probably, please don't come for me. (laughs) (laughs) Look, the the modern man shed, um, I think you have probably tried to uh, generalise it a little too much. Um, It's it's less about Well, I'm not invited in. I'm a woman. (laughs) Well, no, I I think they're pretty open. Um, it's. I think it's. It's less about you know, the the being the brute with the hammer, and more about particularly for um, you know. And keep in mind that I'm, I, I don't know the, the average age. I'm guessing is probably in the 60s or 70s. So that's men who grew up in the what's that 70s, um, 60s, 70s, something like that. They're 
it was a time where there was a lot more hands-on craft. People generally knew how to fix things. So it's not just men, you know, women knew how to sew and fix clothes generally. Men, you know, my, my father is, is pretty handy on the sewing machine, I have to admit. Um, but it's a place where they can come together and start to practice those crafts. They can learn new crafts uh, and particularly keeping their hands busy, you know, with, with, with mm. you know, more finer woodwork, making toys for kids, repairing, um, making furniture. It, it really is an updated version of the, the shed in the backyard that has also long been a part of the Australian culture. Um, they're not all the same. Um, they, they also provide that connection to the outside community. And that's what I found a lot, particularly in rural New South Wales, is that they're tapped into the local community. So they're creating toys for local um, charities to raffle and to raise money. They're doing stuff for schools. Um, generally, not generally, I think on occasion, you also see a few younger men starting to get involved and come through it. And you're beginning to create those cross-generational um, bonds as well. Um, I just don't know. Like, do we, are there many young people actually going through it though? I, I don't know. It'd be an interesting question to ask. Yeah. I, I have seen some who, who do. Yeah. Have you ever been to a men's shed? Uh, a, a while ago I did out in, yeah. out in the Riverina. Yep. And how was your experience with it? Did it oh, wait, it wait. I have to ask you the the real question. Did you pick up a hammer? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't. But oh, I wasn't. I I wasn't so my stigma doesn't hold up. I wasn't there to to create anything. I was talking to them about donating some um, some toys, handmade toys, to a yeah a charitable cause. The other common thing that you'll see, though, is that you'll see tea bags, you'll see coffee cups, you'll see a comfortable area where men can sit and talk, and it's almost like the the woodwork and the metalwork and the use of tools is the conduit to that connection, to that human connection. Um, mm. And I think. Um, slowly we're starting to see those skills kind of expand out and you may even see, uh, you know, an area where men can learn to cook for themselves um, or how to contact their families by computer. Oh, cute. Which is, I love which that. is very cute. And, you know, we, and it's moving away from the, like the spanners and the, the hmm. hammers that I certainly picture a men's shed to be. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I can see how that would be really useful. Look, I think the, I think the men's shed movement is a really, really beneficial um, uh, initiative, particularly for older men. The other thing to keep in mind is that they're also a generation that came from that time when men didn't talk about their feelings, and it's a it's a I wouldn't say it's a skill, but it's something that you have to be practiced at to begin to talk about what's going on inside, to talk about emotions, to talk about feelings, and you know, it, it's, it's done a lot to combat that and it's done a lot to combat loneliness, mm -hmm. particularly in older men across across Australia. I'm um, sort of saying and, more than anything, it might be like a coping mechanism, right? Because I like my my mental view of it at the moment is like exactly what you've just said of it's a generation of men that maybe aren't as well practiced at actually talking about their feelings. And I don't think that just changes overnight where you can just be comfortable going, oh, my God, I joined a men's shed. I'm going to go and talk about my feelings. But um, I would say probably what it is, is it's a space to 
I guess, channel some of those feelings or some of the, some of that energy that would just normally go into maybe festering inside of you and, you know, getting out of proportion. Um, it's a way to positively channel that energy in some way and connect mm. with people and break away from isolation. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and provide that environment that they're used to, you know, they may not be sitting around holding hands, singing Kumbaya and getting in touch with their <clears throat> inner feelings, but they are, having those conversations and they are talking to their mates and it might be talking about, you know, footy or what happened down at the club. Um, But as I think we've kind of explored over the last few episodes, those conversations in their own right have a really positive impact. Um, And on that note, there's been some work um, to look at the impact of men's sheds Uh, in 2013 beyond blue uh, looked at it and, and released a report. Um, and unsurprisingly, men's shed members are mostly older men, as we have discussed. The, the mean age, I wasn't far off. The mean age is 69 years. The median is 70. Um, and shed members range in age from 23 to 100 years old. That'd be, that'd be pretty, I mean, that'd be fascinating just to listen to the stories of, of the 100-year-old and learn the skills <laughs> of when, you know, he used to have to do whatever he had to do, make his own furniture. Mm. Or, um, but the bulk, the massive bulk of, uh, of members, 78% of shed members are between the ages of 60 and 79 uh, and 80% of members are retired from work. And I think that's probably another important point is that it's a generation that placed a lot of their identity and a lot of their connections was based in work. And mm. as as they retire, and I've seen this with some of my own stuff, um, as they retire, they don't have those connections outside of work um, and they, they falter and they, you know, they lose, lose that, that human connection. Um, so this is another. Also maybe a bit of a sense of purpose as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good one you've picked up on there too. Um, Mm. And that's where the, the work to create toys and to build things to be, you know, rash uh, raffled off and so forth again, contributes to their sense of purpose, their sense of identity and their Mm, self-worth. The Beyond Blue report also, and I think this is quite telling, um, looked at the reasons why uh, members join the shed and the clear majority with over 27% of respondents talks about to meet new friends. And I think that kind of says it all, doesn't it? Sweet. Yeah, Yeah. that's really sweet. And and kind of getting to the heart of, what we've been talking about in terms of that isolation and removing that loneliness, if there's a space, I mean, who am I to judge really? Who's anyone to judge how someone meets a new friend or how someone interacts with one another? Um, you know, if it's fulfilling its purpose and it's, it's breaking that chain or that cycle of isolation, then that's great. Absolutely. Even if, Absolutely. Even if it is with a hammer in your hand. <laughs> you can achieve a lot with a hammer. Yeah, you sure can. I just want to know if they have like got marketing ploys with tool. Like, is their logo a tool, or like I'm going to have to look that up now. I'm going to have to look that up. I just I don't know where I've got this stigma in my brain of it just being lots of tools and yeah, just kind of this manly place of people hammering and building and 
spanners in the works and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) But I've definitely got that image in my mind, even though I've never stepped into a men's shed. So So the Australian Men's Shed Association, their logo is a shed, unsurprisingly. uh, Is there any kind of a tool in there? No, you're not thinking of Freemasons, are you? I don't know, perhaps. Um, so I think I think that's enough about men's sheds. Um, one ooh. of the one of the the things that we learned about you, uh, P, is that you have quite the crush on Esther Perel. Oh my god, I love her. She's just the most amazing woman ever. She's just got such a nice way of um, shifting perspectives. I th- I think I really really appreciate it when someone can change my thinking on something. Um, so for anyone that's not familiar with her work, she did a Ted talk and she's done a couple of Ted talks. She's got her own podcast, which is just fascinating. Um, which is where she records couples therapy sessions like live so that you can, it's very voyeuristic. You get to listen into people's problems and realize that you're not quite as alone in whatever you're struggling with. Um, but she did a Ted talk. (laughs) She did. Yeah. TED Talk back in 2013 talking about the secret to desire in a long-term relationship and this was the one that Justin had referenced um, with how we kind of expect our partners to be all of the things that our community used to be. So I've pulled and kind of paraphrased because what she said about it was quite long even though what I'm going to recite to you is quite long still but I've paraphrased what she said. Um, She says in that speech, at the heart of sustaining desire in a committed relationship I think is the reconciliation of two fundamental human needs. On the one hand, our need for security, predictability, safety and dependability, for reliability, for permanence, all these anchoring and grounding experiences of our lives that we call home. But we also have an equally strong need, both men and women, for adventure, novelty, mystery, risk, danger, the unknown, the unexpected and surprise, journey, travel and so on. So reconciling our need for security and the need for adventure into one relationship or what we now call a passionate marriage used to be a contradiction in terms because marriage used to be an economic institution where you had a partnership for life in terms of uh, social status and children's succession and companionship and so on. But now we want our partner to still give us all of those things, but we want them to be a best friend, a trusted confidant, a passionate lover to boot, and we'll live twice as long. So it's even harder. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we, she goes on to say, so we've come to the one person and asked them to give us what an entire village used to provide us with. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and all, or all in one. Give me comfort, but give me edge. Give me novelty, but give me familiar, I can't say that word, familiarity. Give me predictability, but give me surprise. So I'm a bit excited that I just got to quote Esther Perel and it made me sound um, (laughs) half as intelligent and as articulate as her. Uh, But, yeah, I think definitely that rings true in, and I'm sure anyone that's been in any kind of long-term committed relationship can, can identify with some of those feelings where, you know, in the, in the very early beginning stages of your relationship, all you crave is that security and safety of like, where are we? What is this? And then you get to that stage of everything's safe and secure and comfortable and you go, 
let's do something that's like spontaneous. Like let's mm. go on an adventure. Um, yeah. And you want that spontaneity. So it's kind of this grappling of wanting multiple different things from the one person. And the other person wanting the same thing from you. Yeah. So this violent cycle of how do we, how are you ever meant to fulfill those needs? Mm. And I think, Will, you and I had had a conversation about this, um, maybe following the podcast that we uh, recorded with Justin where we'd kind of spoken about, you know, we used to get all of these things from our communities. We used to be able to get them from whether that was our friendship groups or Mm. the, like religion was a really big thing in older cultures gone past or the church or whatever it was there used to be and even like schools to agree <laughs> to a degree we don't really have that level of community now but also with people commuting back and forth I mean you're a perfect example like how do you be part of a community when you're commuting in and out of that community and outside of the community that you live within for long periods of time every day so I think mm. that's probably you know, reconciling with that and how do we be part of that community and still get what we need by not placing all of those expectations on the one person in our life when the the goal, not the goalpost, but the parameters have shifted. Well, that's right. The parameters of modern life have shifted and, and there's this, uh, I don't know what you'd call it and I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably irritate a whole lot of evolutionary biologists but this kind of evolutionary drive of uh, the 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 fundamental human need is for all of these things but our community and our society has morphed into something which can't necessarily support them anymore um Mm. because it is it is tough you know when you when you or when i leave um you know my own community in the blue mountains every day and drive down to sydney um it's difficult and there's that yearning and i you know, certainly for me, it's. Uh, I really look forward to um, getting back there, and when I have the opportunity to work from home, which is becoming more and more often now, thankfully, um, it's almost a novelty to be able to participate in my local community, uh, to go and mm. get my coffee at my local coffee shop and and strike yeah. up or rekindle that that relationship with the barista. Um, mm. So it, it's, it takes it's consistency though, right? Like it's something that yeah, you absolutely. can't just kind of go, I'm going to work from home one day every, you know, every quarter, every three months mm. I'm going to work from home and I'm going to have this sense of community. It takes exactly the same as with a relationship. It takes that consistency of building up those relationships over time and building up that trust and that network of people um, where you can lean on them and conversely they can lean on you as well. Mm. And um, although we didn't talk about it, you know, and there's all these things kind of under, underpinning and reinforcing in a in a bit of a um, negative feedback loop or positive feedback loop in a negative way, <laughs> where you've got these other institutions. So volunteering is dropping away. You know, volunteering is another outlet or another opportunity to make these. Com- um, participate in this community. Yeah, but there's just not very many great outlets for volunteering. I have a bone to pick with that. I think a lot of people and a lot of institutions are using volunteering with the exception of a couple of altruistic ones. Sorry, I don't mean to derail the point that you're trying to make here, but a lot of a lot of people use volunteering as just free labor. And it's so infuriating, like with the, with the exception of like, you know, fire or things that you like, 
things that you can genuinely do to support the community or, yeah. you know, like altruistic kids, purposes. Kids sporting clubs. Well, yep. Jump Service on a club. jump on a network to find a volunteering opportunity, and it's just come and volunteer at this event that we're making a profit from. Come and volunteer for this film festival. Come and volunteer for this, and it's just a lot of free labor. So I think, um, you know, I I think there's a bit of a responsibility on people that are calling for volunteers to remember that it's coming from the purpose of driving community and those community bonds as well. Mm. Pay for your staff. Don't don't ask for free labor. <laughs> <laughs> so point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think it's it's something that I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of older people, particularly as they've retired. I used to work in communities as well um, in my younger days, and it was a lot of people kind of going, "Oh, I really want to have purpose, and I really want to volunteer, but I don't really want to go and stand on my feet for seven hours and you know take people's tickets at the local film festival that they're just trying to." not have staff like paid staff like Mm. that's not altruistic I'm not giving back to the community I'm just giving to the pockets of the film festival as an example I'm picking on film festivals at the moment but um the 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 point that I'm trying to make is that there's a lot of people particularly at that retirement age that are kind of going I've I've done my bit of working now and I just want to give back to the community and there there is this sense of like we miss this feeling of like going and genuinely giving back to the community. And mm. I think unless you do a hell of a lot of training, like you can't just walk into the the real fire service and just pick up a hose and start fighting fires. You have to do a lot of training for that. You can't just go into Lifeline and pick up the phone and do crisis support. You have to do a hell of a lot of training for it, which yeah. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't do that training. It's still very important. But um, I think we're in this culture and this economy at the moment of – instant gratification. Mm-hmm. So those instant gratification opportunities for volunteering and giving back to your community and really having that altruistic sense of I've done something for my community, they're very few and far between at the moment. Mm, interesting. Oh, yeah, okay. Because my experience, which is mm. you know, largely based outside of Sydney, is is that that isn't the case. Um, mm. Interesting. Interesting observation there. Yeah. Um, so what um, else did we talk about? We talked, we mentioned your values really quickly. Can you uh, yes. run us through what they were? Yes. So we did talk about my values um, and as importantly, I think my principles. So values, are in, look, to dumb it down really, really, values are what drives your behavior. Um, and for me, my values are integrity, ambition, honesty, and service. Um, as I mentioned in the conversation with Justin, for a long time, I struggled to articulate how they are applied and how they exert a force on me. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, as I say in the, in the conversation with Justin, that I heard this webinar by Dr. Simon Longstaff, uh, and we'll drop a, a link in the show notes to um, his page at the Ethics Center, where he's the executive director. Um, he introduced this idea of principles and the principles guide you in how your values exert a force on you. So um, the example that um, he gave, um, and I'm going to horribly paraphrase, is that we win at all costs can be utilized by the banks. And I think he used the example in the Royal, uh, as the Royal Commission into banking was going on, that a value of we win at all costs can mean that we accept 
corrupt behavior. We accept breaching the law. We accept a whole lot of nasty stuff. But if you underline it with um, we do no harm, then that acts and that serves as a guiding principle in how you apply your value. So we will win at all costs, but we will also not do any harm. Um, so for my principles, uh, I've got three. They are accountability uh, to the people or to community, public good and transparency. And for me, the idea was always, it was always difficult to reconcile this value of ambition um, because as I say, ambition stirs in many people this idea that you're prepared to do anything and say anything to get ahead uh and you know that's not me um can kind of be seen as a bit of a dirty word sometimes right like if you're ambitious that you are i I suppose a lot of people mistake ambitious with ruthless yeah yeah that's i think that's right i think that's right um and so how to counter that idea or that um you know the, the 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 use of ambition in a pejorative sense um, and that's where the, the idea of principles kind of really rang true with me, um, particularly around public good, transparency and, and, and accountability, um, that if you apply ambition in those circumstances, then it's, it's raising people up, you know, building your team up with you rather than climbing over their, uh, their corpses to get ahead. Mm. It's kind of what you want for someone in an altruistic I know I've said that word a lot tonight, but for someone that's working towards like a community benefit or a public, like a public servant, as an example, um, I want to know that my public servants are acting with ambition and fighting for the best outcome. Um, so I don't think ambition is always a bad thing. I, I think what grinds most people's gears is that, that brown cardigan stereotype that we tend to think of with like public servants as an example we go you're trying to be or you're supposed to be there to serve communities constituents whatever it is um and you don't have the ambition that we're expecting of you so I think ambition I I think it gets a bad rap I think ambition Mm. needs to be reclaimed as a good thing so I'm going to put you on the Mm. spot do you have I don't know what mine are no (laughs) Okay. No, I think um, I think, and I'd I'd probably be in a similar boat to what a lot of people listening to this would would be in, right? Where if I really had to sit down and think about it, I think I could really genuinely come up with them. And I think, broadly speaking, I know what they are. Service to others is definitely in there, um, and you know, like acts of service for the greater good, um, and you know, pushing for excellence and all of those things, but I have not taken the time that you have to actually go through and articulate them in as, uh, as nice a package as you have done. I've always admired the way that you've done that. Do you have a kind of formula that you followed for anyone that's wanting to kind of develop their own principles or values? How did you go about doing that? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think it's, it was just an iterative process over many, many years. Um, mm. Almost, and it's almost like you start with what you think, and then you reflect and you test them against experiences and decisions that you've made. And if they don't align, then you can almost discard it. Um, and one that I'm kind of toying with at the moment is actually, I think, I think probably more than honesty is justice. Um, mm. And the and and the reason I've come about to that way of thinking is that I've 
reacted and and um, made decisions. And I sit back and I think, well, what drove that? Like it wasn't coming from a place of hmm. honesty, which isn't to say that it was dishonest. I I hasten to add, um, it wasn't driven by an integrity or ambition or service. It was something else. And and I think it's justice. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's this iterative process. I don't, you know, I don't think that they will be the the values um, that, or I don't think that I'll articulate them in the same way like that forever. Of course. I don't think our values necessarily. You mean you won't have the same values when you've joined a men's shed when you're 70 or 80 years old? <laughs> I think the I think the values remain pretty consistent. It's it's how you articulate them. <laughs> Yours will be good construction quality and, and sound engineering. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful though. But I think the the thing that I would just finish up on with the values thing is um, there is what people say they do. And there is what they actually do. Mm. So how many times have you been in, been privy to an organization, say, for example, where they've said our values that are on the wall are this, 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 and this, and you go, well, that's not what I'm seeing within the four walls. Um, so I think, uh, in terms of values, there has to be some brutal honesty that you have to be willing to get really, really honest with yourself because, you know, I mean, I look at all of those values that you've listed out there and go, yeah, I, I can see that. But, um, you know, if you had said something that was wildly off base, I think that's when it gets really, they, they lose their meaning. Yeah, absolutely. And they're just words at that point. That's right. I, I remember um, there was an organization I had some familiarity with and they had a list on their wall of their values and there were about 23 words, <laughs> 23 <laughs> mm. things they value. It's just not possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's yes, in some organisations um, there are the values on the walls and then there are the values that drive behaviour and they're two very different value sets. Yeah. Hundred percent. Mm. Um, so one of the things that Justin had also mentioned in this interview was that women are better at building support networks and not isolating as much as men. I'm gonna be honest, I found this one really, really challenging to actually find a lot of research on. There was some really outdated research dating back to like nineteen eighty eight. So I wasn't confident in sort of putting it in as a citation here. Um, and there was some really, really great opinion pieces on it, but not largely backed up with a lot of evidence. So I guess what that points to is that it's one of those things that it suggests that we as a community, as a, as a world feel at our core. And we've had this discussion before, Will, you know, we feel like something's there, mm, but yep. we're not really, the data isn't there to support it, or maybe we're not even collecting the data to validate it. Um, what I did find was there was a survey done by Relationships Australia was in 2018 where they said um, of the survey respondents, more men, so 15%, than women at 8% reported that they had no close friends outside of their long-term relationships. There were significant uh, differences in the report of men and women uh, when they were asked who they turned to for support if they had problems, while a significant proportion of men and women reported that they turned to their partner at mm -hmm. 45%. Women were more likely to turn to more immediate family, so 18% or friends at 26%, 19% at 
than men at 16 and 17 percent and I wonder if that also speaks to um, a point that I tried to get across when when Justin had asked me you know my opinion of of I guess or my perceptions really I think he he voiced it as in dealing with men um, and I'd sort of said you know sometimes you feel like you get a you go one step forward and two steps backwards or the armor comes up and yep. you can't really um, always get a handle on exactly where you stand um, has been my experience not with all men it's not it's not universal across the board but um, I wonder if that statistic is pointing to that that you know it's a little bit more consistent sometimes going to a friend that you know that you're going to get that empathy from rather than uh, putting the conversation out to a man and not really being sure whether the armour is going to go up or whether there's going to be that empathy that you're needing in that moment. Well, it comes back to that that uh, quote from um, Esther, isn't it? Looking for predictability. Um, and if you yeah. don't know whether the armour is going to be up or down, chances are you're not going to necessarily mm. reach out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will caveat this one with it was a really small sample size, so only 1,400 respondents, 78% of which identified as female. So draw your own conclusions. I was eager to put it in there only because it was kind of the only data set that I could find that had any real validity to it. Um, But, yeah, draw your own conclusions. Take it with a grain of salt. It's a discussion starter rather than the end of the discussion. Someone needs to be collecting data on this kind of stuff though. (laughs) Um, all right now the other one of the other things that we mentioned uh that justin mentioned was simon sinek's um rather well-known book find your why um we'll pop a link into the ted talk He, he he i think he started this off with a ted talk rather than the book um but the book is start with why and it goes through bringing people um or drawing them to the purpose behind what they're doing the cause or the belief um, and, and attaching that or recognizing that and how that drives every one of us in what we do every day. Um, now Justin, um, mentioned that he had a tragedy at 17 whilst making the decision to go to uni. And this is something that I know that, um, probably rings a little bit home, uh, close to home for you as well, but more mm. broadly for a lot of us, um, it, draws into into the light this idea that at the age of 17 or 18 uh, there's an expectation that we're equipped um, and have the knowledge and the maturity to make some pretty big financial decisions that impact the rest of our lives Um, and it begs the question of are we mentally uh, mature enough well I would probably say, do we even know enough about ourselves at that point? And it's it's one of those things that I really struggle with, but at the same time, I, I want to ask little kids this sometimes when you go, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like the cutest thing when they say a ballerina or a fireman or something like that. But I think we need to switch that more to what makes you happy at your core at the moment and, and where do you see your life kind of going and switch that question. But we we tend to... I don't know, put people in a box and say you're going to be this without recognising necessarily that jobs are transferable, skills are transferable. Mm. You might move to different industries. You might move into different jobs. Um, 
jobs are changing. I was that person that went to uni and all of my teachers were saying, most of you will be in a job that doesn't exist in, in 10 years. And I was like, whatever, Mr. (laughs) Whatever your name is. Like, I don't care what you say, Mr. Professor, I'm going to be, you know, that, um, I was going to be an event manager at that time and surpassed that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that we just don't know what the future holds. So I don't know that we're well equipped knowing ourselves well enough it would be interesting um i mean i won't ask uh or i won't i won't highlight your age but you know somewhere between 27 and 35 and (laughs) can't be too specific broad a broad category and um and yeah i don't mean to uh or and i hope this doesn't embarrass you but at that age you know you, you haven't um, either had the reason or, or um, had cause to really think hard about fundamentally at your core who you are and what drives you in terms of values, right? We just had that discussion. So, Or I thought I did, but I was 17 and I knew nothing, right? Like well, who you think you are at 17 is totally different to who you end up becoming. Yeah, yeah, but but I think I think if we, you know, rather than, starting the conversation or, or having that conversation with, you know, the seven or the eight-year-old. And I'm trying to do this with my kids. Um, hmm, instead yeah. of saying, what do you want to be when you're older? It's like, what's important to you? Now, that's going to change, hmm. absolutely. But I would hope um, and I imagine that it gets them in the practice of thinking about that, about what drives me, what's important to me, what am I not willing to compromise hmm. on, Um and they can have that discussion internally and externally um, so that by the time they hit 16 or 17, they've at least got a bit of an idea or an understanding of the the values framework that sits within them. Um, mm. I think from you know recent experience, um, I, I think it would be fair to say that by the age of 17 or 18, the experiences that would form your uh, value set have largely already occurred um, for, for, for many people deep inside, I think, you know, through the ages of, um, and I have no data to back this up. Yeah. It's only from a very faint recollection of a book I read <laughs> many years ago that through your formative years, that's when life experience begins to have that, um, that everlasting impact on, on forming who you are. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh I think that I think it's ever evolving though. I don't know that we could ever just say and chalk us up as one certain thing. Um and ever say evolving or know, ever refining. It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh I I think it's evolutionary. I think you evolve as a person. You can be how many people do you know that have gone through a complete transformation and evolved who they are as a person? They're not the person that they were five years ago. And that might be, you know, that might happen at the age of 50. It might happen at the age of 20. It might happen at any but age. But that's built on the assumption that there was no mask, that there was no armor, that there was no facade in place for all that time. And uh, this is only a, a, a pure punt on my behalf. I'd wager that often um, when you see those sorts of transformations, rather than somebody changing, it's actually them being who they've always been but without the the facade or the mask. Yeah, I don't know that we could generalise that for everyone but I certainly think um, 
that that has also been my experience when people have had those really really transform transformative experiences in fact when I had that transformation when I was a little bit younger I had my quarter life crisis and it was that moment of going oh my god I've society has told me that I need to be x or y my entire life what do I want what matters to me Mm. um that was that that moment for me by untamed no oh no god that my quarter life crisis happened when I was 24 um and I like it hit me like a ton of bricks and it was that moment of you know society told me that I needed to be the good girl and I needed to behave in a certain way and I needed to do this and I needed to earn this much money and I needed to make a career out of all of these things what makes me happy Mm. um and I my experience with, you know, my friendship circle and a lot of women that I've met is that they have a very similar moment of, of reflecting of, you know, the world, the world tells women that they need to be a certain thing. I don't know if men go through this as well, but certainly a lot of women that I've spoken to go through it and really reflecting on, well, hang on, if I take away all of the expectations and all of the burdens that other people have put on me on what I should be at my core, what do I want to be? Mm -hmm. Um, but that moment for me happened, you know, well after I'd finished uni, well after I'd, I think I was just finishing my master's when that happened, when that quarter life crisis happened for me. (laughs) And, um, I had already gotten myself into quite a substantial amount of, of uni fees at that point. And it just begs the question of, you know, was I, well equipped mentally Mm. enough to be able to make those really lengthy decisions about and and decisions that really impacted the rest of my life I mean it impacts what job you can go into and you know what your income is going to be like all of these things that shapes your life in so many ways was I equipped to do that I don't know Mm. I don't know that we could say that anyone is Mm. and I think that's so I've actually pulled some figures on that in terms of uni completion rates um it's different by institution to institution but in Australia as at they measured from for a five-year period so from 2010 to 2015 the highest completion rate in the country was for the University of Melbourne. That's 87.7%. That's the highest. The lowest was, I wonder if they're going to get angry at me if I've said this. Probably. I mean, it's publicly available, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Federation Uni, no disrespect, guys, um, 36.4%. Like it's pretty staggering. That's huge. Yeah. Bit of, well, they're not my stats. I mean, it's like openly it's available it information. It's not. It is what it is. Um, The average though, the large average of it was 64.1% of people that enter into a university degree actually complete their degree. Mm. And that's that's pretty staggering. It is. And that, but that doesn't, and it has to be remembered, that doesn't reflect the number that finish their degree and then go on to not really use it. (laughs) How many law degrees sit unused? Now, we better get a hurry on yeah. because we're going some pretty major long time here. Um, now, we also mm. spoke about uh, or J- Justin mentioned that he had just finished his mental health first aid uh, certificate uh, and this was – I did one similar um, quite a number of years ago. Um, according to Mental Health First Aid Australia, um, and I think rightly so, it makes sense, physical first aid is accepted and, and widespread in our community. However, most do not cover mental health problems. And I know we've spoken in the past when we, when we talked to Todd 
um, one of the the concerns that I know you had was how do I do it? How do I have a conversation with somebody mm. who I think is having mental health problems? Um, so these uh, specific mental health first aid courses are designed with the intention of bridging that gap uh, and giving people the confidence to have those conversations, to uh, intervene where they think it's necessary and to help people just as with first aid. It's not to solve the issues. It's just to keep them going until they can get professional help. Um, mm. If you want more info um, or... Well, I mean, it goes the same with, with physical first aid, right? Yeah. Like you, like you, you, you never go into bandaging someone's arm up with the expectation that you're going to heal a broken bone. It's just to get them to a hospital. That's right. Keep them, keep them going until they can get professional help. Um, mm. If you want more info on this um, or, and, and this is, I think, a, a, a really good idea to encourage your organization to offer this mental health first aid training, you can find more information at mhfa.com.au. Very good. Very good conversation. I think we all need to be having a little bit more. Um, the the final one is just around the Promundo and Axe uh, research that Justin had mentioned. He had mentioned it was particularly around youth um, and the ideas of what a man should be. So there was this whole report that was done called Man in a Box, a study on being a young man in the US, the UK and Mexico. So not quite so relevant to Australia but still I'm going to highlight kind of what came out of it because I do think it's transferable here. Um, the man in the box refers to a set of beliefs communicated by parents, family, the media, peers, and other members of society that place pressure on men to be a certain way. The report gives research regard to the concept of the man box measuring how young men encounter these messages socially, how they internalize them personally uh, personally rather, and how these beliefs shape both their lives and the lives of those around them. So um, it's a it's a pretty extensive report. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but basically there were seven pillars that they pulled out of, you know, these kind of overriding um, ideals that we place on men. Um, and I'll, I'll run through them. Tell me, Will, if any of them ring true to you as your experience of a man. Um, self-sufficiency acting tough, physical attractiveness. Re number four is rigid masculine gender roles. There's a bit of a mouthful to get out. Uh, number five is heterosexuality and homophobia. Number six is hypersexuality. And number seven is aggression and control. They all ring true, not so much in the home, but certainly as messages from broader society that, guided or that, that suggested that this was how as a man I should be um, you know and I think particularly in what we discussed with Justin the first two self-sufficiency and acting tough I mean if we unpack self-sufficiency that says that um, you know a man who talks a lot about his worries fears and problems shouldn't uh, really get respect and that a man should figure out their own personal problems on their own without asking others for help I mean there you have one of the major issues I, I'd suggest in um in uh, mental health in men. And the second one is acting tough. So a guy who doesn't, um, uh, sorry, a guy should act strong, even if they feel scared or nervous inside. So if you subscribe to that pillar, you're not really going to let on and talk about how you're feeling inside unless those feelings are, I want to 
bashing or I'm angry or I'm, you know, mad. Um, you're not going to say I'm, I'm really hurt. I'm, I'm, you know, feeling really anxious. Um, they don't align with those, with those pillars. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're kind of, if I can kind of play that back to you, what you're saying is that maybe you didn't have these expectations placed upon you or you felt as though you didn't have these expectations placed upon you from your family unit growing up, but you definitely felt them all around you. Yep. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a challenge, especially when you don't necessarily, you can't isolate any one toxic person that it's coming from say for example like if it's just a teacher or it's just a mother or it's just someone in your life that you can kind of isolate it to and say well you're clearly not good for my mental health I'm going to cut you out Mm -hmm. of this conversation or I'm just not going to listen to you anymore it sounds like it's kind of this broader uh feeling that's being instilled or projected onto young men absolutely absolutely and it's from all corners it's from all corners you know from from tv shows and Mm -hmm. advertising through to uh behavior in the playground you know, the impact of peers yeah. who, who have come from an environment where these seven pillars are, you know, almost rules for growing up um, for a young bloke. Yeah. Um, and and they, they bring those to the to the schoolyard too. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it goes without saying, but I think if you are someone that identifies as female and you're listening to this and you're kind of going, oh, well, imagine if you were a female and what you had to deal with. Um, it's certainly not to discredit and and sort of say men have it worse. Um, it's not to say that women have it worse either. It's just about bringing a little bit of awareness to both sides and, and if nothing else, a little bit of empathy for, for um, both. We can have both genders or different genders can have totally different experiences and I think that's okay. I don't think that we need to be attacking it from this all-encompassing, broad-ranging experience. I think um, similar to what you've got there for the man-in-the-box uh, research, there's probably – quite similarly something that you can look at for females as well and young mm. women, the expectations and the societal pressures that are, pl- that are placed on them as well. Um, but that is definitely a conversation for a different day. Yep. And I'm conscious that this has been a particularly long episode. There was so much to go through and um, I, I really, really, really value everything that Justin ran through with us and just how much tangible uh, how many tangible takeaways he gave everyone to be able to really take this and be an ally in the future? Mm, absolutely, no. It was it was it was a really good conversation, um, Frank. Uh, that, as you say, is not just of assistance to men, but I think just as importantly mm. for for anyone who's who's assisting people through uh, through mental health. Um, and I think more importantly, some for human beings. Yeah, but but more importantly, what can we do to prevent them from getting there? Mm, yeah so on that note it's been another very if you've stuck with us this long (laughs) thank you we know it's been a lengthy one um but we do appreciate you listening in so thank you very much until next week we hope you enjoyed this episode of we need to talk for a copy of the show notes relevant links from the episode more information or if there's someone you'd like to hear from head to weneedtotalkpod.com. We Need to Talk exists purely to give a voice to the things that we're not talking enough or at all about. But please keep in mind that those voices are our own. 
All views, opinions, and concepts discussed in the show are shared in a personal capacity and do not represent the organisations that any of the hosts or guests are employed by or affiliated with. We Need to Talk is produced for entertainment purposes only and does not replace professional, personal, or medical advice specific to your individual circumstances. And friends, if you're struggling with mental health, we hear you, we see you, and we care about you. Most importantly, we encourage you to seek help from your GP who is far better placed to lay out your options than we are.